What's up, guys? Simon Lazard here, and you're listening to Running It with Nate Sexton. Hello, Disc Golf fans, and welcome back to another edition of Running It with Nate Sexton. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. He is a man who has now bought us post-production coverage, live coverage, and of course, America's number one disc golf podcast, and still number three in sports podcast in Malaysia, Mr. Nate Sexton. Nate, how you doing today, man? Better now that I hear we're holding steady in Malaysia. That's great news. Yeah, we haven't lost any ground there at all. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that as well. Uh, it was really awesome hearing you call some live disc golf for a change. Uh, how was that for you? It was fun. I, it, it had been way too long since I'd seen my friend Nate Doss and, and Val Jenkins. And to, I'd never been to their brewery. So, you know, aside from the golf being thrilling and Kona dominating and Nico and Kale having an epic battle down the stretch, uh, just getting there and going to Bend, uh, a city that I enjoy, and seeing those guys and seeing all the hard work that they've poured into their brewery, and it's all paying off for them. It was just kind of like a a warm glow feeling, you know, seeing seeing a hundred people outside enjoying their beer and and eating at the food trucks at Bevel Brewing in Bend, and I just was like, man, I'm just proud of what they've accomplished, you know, to to follow their dreams and and have it working out. It was it was fun to see. And I saw that you finally got to get your signature on there with all those other famous signatures. I saw the picture up on uh, up on social media. That had to be pretty cool. Yeah, it was. And and this is no surprise to anyone, I think. But Val told me they had just got the moved into the brewery. We can ask Val about this maybe more when she comes on the show. But she said they had just like painted and done all this decoration for their space. And then who but Big Germ comes to visit the brewery and he's like, where can I sign the wall? So that wasn't their idea. That came straight from the big kahuna. He was like, I'm sign I'm here, I'm the big German, I need to sign something. And so that's he how was that started. Yeah, yeah, she was, was like, drawing. Whoa, 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 we just did these walls. Like, nah. And then they were like, I guess we can do the door. And you know, now it's pretty cool. So hats off to Big German. It, it turned out cool. But it started out as like a what? You want to sign the wall? We just got this place. Yeah, no no shock there at all. All right, guys, now before we get you to an exciting interview, you guys know we have to take care of a little bit of business. And, of course, I'm talking about our friends over at FisherDiscGolf.com. Guys, if you haven't visited FisherDiscGolf.com right now, I highly recommend you hop over to their website. Levi and Adam are adding all sorts of new plastic and apparel every single day. And I'm talking about some of that hard-to-get plastic as well. You guys can hop over to FisherDiscGolf.com, check out all the new stuff that they're loading on there. Of course, they're doing the disc stacks every Tuesday and Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's available on their Facebook page and in high definition on YouTube. Uh, if you guys haven't checked it out, this is really kind of a cool, fun way to check out some discs that maybe you wouldn't purchase on your own, uh, but you go ahead and you pull one out. Like I said, I've gotten one from there, uh, a disc that I would have never bought, and it's kind of become a staple in my bag. Uh, so check out FisherDiscGolf.com. They're doing a lot of big things. Of course, they're an official sponsor of Ledgestone, so they are getting those specialty Ledgestone discs in. Last I saw, they still had a few left. Uh, and of course, all sorts of neat Fisher apparel 
everything you need to get out there and play around. They've been an awesome supporter of this show, uh, and they're really just a, a great supporter of the sport of disc golf uh, all in its own. So we really appreciate them. And just for listening to this show, they're going to go ahead and hook you up. Nate, what do our listeners have to do to save a little bit of money? Make sure to use our code RUNIT10 to save 10%. You always get free shipping, and the guys over at Fisher Disc Golf, those are our guys. They've been with the show since the very beginning. So show them some love. Get over there. Get your next disc from FisherDiscGolf.com. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would be crazy if I didn't mention the awesome people over at Cab Coffee Roasters. You guys heard us talk about them a little bit last week. You've seen us share their information on Instagram. And this isn't just because they wanted to be a sponsor of the show. Hudson is doing amazing things. Uh, he's working hard to get amazing coffee out to you guys. Uh, of course, we talked a little bit about it last week. CAB stands for Cooper and Brooke. Uh, these are two individuals that are on the autism spectrum disorder. Um, and he wanted to create a company where he could get them to work and, and have them do something and found as they got older, it was a little bit more difficult for them to find work. Uh, and he started this coffee company. He's got them working with them. They're doing amazing things over there. Uh, it's just really a great cause. And on top of it, it's great coffee. Nate, what are you drinking this week from cab coffee roasters? I just busted into my second bag and spoiler alert, they're two for two so far. We got another winner. So I went with the Columbia L Tiple. I'm not sure on the pronunciation, but I can say it was great. It says right on the bag, roasted on March 1st, so you know it's fresh. And yeah, I had it this morning. Again, really smooth. Uh, I'm I'm in, man. I'm, my my uh, my Starbucks beans are collecting dust. I gotta say, I'm I'm, I'm in on cab. Yeah, and guys, check out their social media pages. Hudson goes live and uh, he does a lot of really cool videos of him tasting the coffee himself. He's roasting it um, and he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, he's got this thing down to a science. The other night he was tasting one, Nate, and he said, you know what? I roasted this one about a half a minute too long. I got to go with higher heat. I mean, this isn't just like, hey, here's some beans. This is somebody who's really putting his heart and soul into this coffee to to make sure that it's it's high quality. And on top of it, he's doing amazing things uh, um, and he's got some big plans. And the only way we're going to be able to help them grow is to help out a small business. So visit cabcoffeeroasters.com. Uh, you can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. Uh, Cab Coffee Roasters. Go ahead and give them a follow. Keep track of what they're doing. He's going to be sharing some new blends. And Nate, our listeners can save a little bit of money at Cab Coffee Roasters as well, right? Yeah, we keep it simple. It's run at 10 again for 10% off your first order. You're not going to be disappointed. This stuff is really good. Yeah, check them out, guys. We're coming off an awesome show. You had Simon set up for us last week. We had a great chat with him. People really seem to enjoy that. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about it on social media and sharing it. So, guys, we thank you so much for that. And once again, you did not disappoint. Kind of going back to the roots a little bit. Who are we running it with today? I'm excited. We've got a guy who is... Uh... Among many other accomplishments, this one this one's not even really an accomplishment, just a memory. He's one of the guys that was kind of like my first point of contact with like Innova as a corporate entity. So like instrumental in me joining Team Innova way back in the day. But more importantly, he's the 1984 PDGA World Champion, and he's worked for Innova for 20 years now. It's Mr. Sam Ferens. Oh, guys, I just I think I figured out the mute button. <laughs> 
<laughs> Perfect well, time. We're happy to have you. Perfect. How are you guys doing? Good, good to be here. Oh, we're doing great, and we're excited to talk to you and hear a little bit about disc golf in the early '80s, mid '80s, early '90s. Those kind of times that are before I was out playing, and I have I, I was thrilled to get to talk to Dave Dunapace a couple of weeks ago and hear yeah. kind of some of the stuff he had to say. Obviously, your name came up as he was talking about coaching you in distance and just I mean we can get it out of the way right away you're the youngest person ever to win a world championship when and you when you won you were only 16 am I right about that that yeah that's that's about right I mean back then I think it was either late June or early July when they had the the PDGA world championships in Rochester New York and I'm a I'm a late August birthday so that uh yeah I just didn't realize at the time what was uh what was going down and they still remind me, you know, <laughs> geez, how many years later? I can't do the math, but, uh, it's quite, quite, uh, quite the number of years, uh, that they keep, keep telling me that, yep, uh, you still have that record. You can't really shake it, I guess. Once you, once you come through with something like that, it kind of follows you around. I do. And I appreciate it even more the, you know, every year that, uh, goes by. <laughs> That's great. I, I, I want to go even earlier, though, with my first question, because I, I what I like to do with our guests, especially somebody kind of old school, go straight to the PDGA, go to the very first tournament you ever played that they have a history of. I'm sure you may have played before this. I don't know. But as far as the PDGA is concerned, your first action, the 1982 fifth annual La Mirada Open playing in junior boys, and you you crushed them, a field of five players. And I see Mark Molnar. And uh, may he rest in peace, Craig Leva, on that list. And I just wanted to know what you uh, remember from squaring off against those guys as probably like a 13-year-old. It was, yeah. I, you know, those guys have been there since uh, since day one. They're they're one of the original players, and uh, and Craig and Mark and Mike, his brother, and I, you know, always just fiercely battled. Um, I think I may still have the trophy somewhere. Uh, Cool. You know, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, boy, oh boy, just to think back, uh, 1983. Um, I know that after after that, we were all involved in the WAMO uh, World Junior Championships, um, and we played the regional events there. And uh, uh, later went on uh, the following year to to go to Sea World um, to play in the the World Junior Championships. WAMO had a a big role. And in, uh, in those days with with the uh, events, uh, World Junior Championships, um, U.S. Opens, they were the they were the biggie before um, uh, Innova came along. Uh, they were the Olympics, basically, of, of our sport. But all in all, yeah, that was those were those were the days. Let me tell you, boy, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could have seen it. I mean, how did you come to find disc sports? Did your parents play or, or what? How did you get to that place where you're playing tournaments at age 13 in a sport that has like literally like only just barely been formally invented just like six or seven years before that? You know, um, it's a, it's, it's a long story. I, I was lucky. I was, I was kind of put in the right place at the right time. Uh, my dad, he moved us around. We moved, you know, born in Washington, DC, worked for Bechtel corporation. So he moved us around I was up in Toronto as a young kid, infant, um, and we later moved across uh, the country to Oakland, and we were there for a couple years, and my dad got a job in Norwalk, California, and we later um, settled in, in La Mirada, you know, and that was probably back in 1975, and during those times, I, I believe that's when Oak Grove, that's when Ed 
planted the first pole holes at Oak Grove Park, the first disc golf course. Yeah, and I, re- I think that's 1975, correct? Yeah, 1975. And, uh, you know, we were driving along. We were in the Pinto. My mom had a Pinto, and we are driving along Alicante Road, and there was a park, and I saw these these guys with long hair throwing these big, huge plastic discs at these orange poles. And I was like, man, what, what's going on there? That, that looks pretty interesting. And I remember I, my, my parents bought me a Super Pro. So I had a, I had a Super Pro. That was my first disc. And I went out and, and played. Apparently, Ed had mapped out uh, some of the holes before he actually put pole holes in at La Mirada with these orange poles. I still remember them. Nine holes, and uh, I, I loved it. And, you know, my parents are like, what are you doing? You know, my mom's out there in the Pinto, you know, keeping her eye out on me. Well, I was uh, I was playing, and, and I befriended a lot of uh, great people up there. Um, but uh, Dad got uh, – we all got transferred, believe it or not, to Taiwan um, for two years. Uh, so 75, 76, 77, we were in Taiwan. I lost my Super Pros. Like the first three months I was there, didn't have any discs. Uh, and later when we came back to, to La Mirada, um, those orange poles, uh, you know, uh, they they basically changed into the first pole holes. The second disc golf course that ever uh, was installed, La Mirada Park, had had pole holes. And I was I was pretty much hooked after that. Uh, 77, 78 um, is when I I started uh, like playing as much as I could. So did, did you go to that high school, like right across the street or was that there back then or? Yeah. yeah believe it or not, it was, uh, that was, it was La Mirada high school right across the street. That was my, uh, that was my high school. I was in elementary school at the time, but, sure. um, you know, later, later to middle school. And, uh, I met this guy, uh, up there. He had a horse trailer. Um, his name was Dan Mangoni. And, uh, he, uh, he's now the, you know, he's the, He's the guy who runs Discovering the World, and, and uh, he was my first uh, first coach. And uh, you know, he he kind of showed me the the ropes, got me the different discs. You know, we were going from from Super Pro to hundred mold to forty mold to backhand to sidearm to to thumber. And I, the, I remember a funny story that uh, you know he was it was probably twelve years old at the time. I, I knew Mark and Mike Molnar and and Craig Leva at the time, and he was teaching us grips and he was teaching this, me this thumber grip and it scraped my arm up. So, you know, my mom was already nervous about me being up and dad were already nervous uh, for me being up there at the park with these, with these uh, seedy looking people. And, uh, they, they, you know, when I came home, I had this bruise on my, my arm and mom went straight up to Dan and, and said, what, what's going on with, with, with my boy. And Mangoni says, Angela, it's, it was, I'm just teaching them how to throw the thumber. So after that, uh, you know, mom and dad became, uh, became uh, pretty good friends. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was pretty instrumental in my early, early years as a disc golfer. Uh, I thought you were going to say, he said to your mom, well, your son's got a terrible thumber. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I I don't think I threw it much after that either. You know, he hit himself in the arm with a thumber. That's not easy to do. (laughs) Have you tried a, have you tried a thumber, Nate? Sure, I've tried it, uh, but probably not with the same discs you were using. <laughs> yeah, they were they were big and heavy, <laughs> and I'm sure that made perfect sense to your mom too. Like, oh, okay, yeah. it's just a thumber. Got it. Yeah, it was, it was just a thumber. Got it, Dan. 
I'm going to keep my eye on you. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, and then skipping ahead, I mean, just two years from that day or roughly from that tournament, you're going to the world championships in, in New York. I mean, who are you traveling with at, at 16 years old? And was that your first like big trip or had you, had you done quite a bit of travel already for the purpose of playing disc golf? Oh, no. I mean, I was pretty much La Mirada bound. I mean, uh, 14, 15, can't really get anywhere. You know, you could get on the bus, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah. But, I mean, even that, it was it was pretty much uh, La Mirada. And Dan Dan says, hey, we got this event coming up. I, I played, uh, you know, I, I played in the World Junior Championships the, the year before. And we did go to, to SeaWorld in Florida to play that. I lost by four tenths of a point in the overall to a guy in Canada by the name of uh, Gene Luke Foray, and uh, it, it's just I didn't have freestyle and I didn't have uh, I didn't have accuracy. I think it was freestyle and accuracy that I didn't do well in, but everything else I did did well in, and uh, four tenths of a point. So it didn't sit well, and I, I came back and, and started practicing, and uh, later in '84 played in the U.S. Open. Um, against the men and just barely missed that when I was second place in, uh, in the U S open, uh, which was essentially the Olympics of our, our sport back then. It had the seven events that had distance, uh, golf, um, accuracy, discathon, uh, MTA, SCF, and, you know, the dreaded freestyle. So, uh, I, I did well in golf there. And Dan was saying, man, you got to go play in this event in Rochester. I got to get you signed up for this, uh, this PDGA. And about two weeks before the event, you know, it was snail mail back then. It wasn't instantaneous lightning speed internet. Um, he, he sent in, uh, you know, he would send in the, uh, the application for, to become a member. And, um, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll sponsor you out there. If, uh, you know, if you happen to win, all I want. Is Paul, Jim Paul Mary's collection. Cause that's what they were, they were offering for the winner. They were offering a cash prize, the title and Jim Paul Mary's coveted disc collection. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, I didn't have any, any, uh, real aspirations other than going out and, uh, and playing. And, and, uh, Dan, you know, got, got permission from mom and, and dad. And, uh, I, I was on the plane out there and, um, Royce Rosanowski was picked me up. He was my chaperone, and uh, that was that was something. He's still a a great a great friend today, and uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was something else. I mean, I I just kind of remember getting in there, and and it's you know it's a little foggy, but uh, for the most part, uh, remember the course pretty well. Remember the fierce competitors. Remember David Greenwell. Remember uh, Michael Sullivan. Uh, they were all like. Like super, like they wanted to beat me <laughs> pretty oh, bad, you know. I bet. You know, yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was pretty, pretty frightening. But uh, you know, I, I, I think I had four discs at the time. I had, uh, I had an arrow. I, I had two AVRs. I had one AVR. I had a backup. And you know, I can't remember if it was another arrow or not. But uh, uh, you know, that's kind of what I had. I had like four discs and a towel, and that's what we did back then. You know. Wow. Uh, before before I address a lot of what you just said, I just want to clarify to the listeners when when Sam talks about an overall, 
that's like a competition that may, that includes a bunch of disciplines. And when he says SCF, that's self-caught flight. So you're talking about throwing the disc up and then like running as far as you can and catching it again. And they're going to measure that distance if you catch it with one hand. And then MTA is about throwing it up there and timing how long you can get the disc in the air before you come back and catch it again one-handed. So just to kind of give you guys an idea of what he's talking about when he's losing by a four-tenths of a point, that's across all these different disciplines of disc throwing. But uh, moving on, yeah. So was four discs like kind of the norm, or, or, or were you like an outlier? No, I mean, I, you know, if I, if there was guys out there that probably had more. Those are my go-tos. Uh, um, it might have been a stingray. I mean, I, I'm probably wrong. You know, I, you guys could look back as to, you know, when discs existed in 19. 19- 1984, but definitely an arrow, uh, definitely two AVRs and, and one other disc. And, uh, you know, it was pretty pure. You know, you just kind of knew what each disc was going to do. Um, you, you know, you stepped up to the T and even to this day, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I'm just most co- comfortable with the rock, uh, with the AVR, you know, fits nicely in the hand and you kind of know where they're going to go. They have the gentle glide and accuracy and, uh, got to the point where, um, they were, you know, it was like the last round and, and Sullivan, um, you know, he was creeping up on me and, uh, and, uh, David Greenwell, obviously is very fierce competitor, great, great friends, both of those guys to this day, um, were sneaking up on me. And I, I think they were maybe two, two strokes away. And I got to the, the, this big hole on the hill. It's kind of reminiscent of the Santa Cruz, uh, top of the, Top of the world hole. Okay. Uh, where, where it was, you know, probably 400 plus feet, uh, down the hill. And, uh, that was a turning point for me. And one, you know, obviously one of the big memories, um, where I just, I took the arrow and I just kind of cranked it out there with, uh, with extra hyzer and it just kept going forever on, on that line. I mean, you know, Nate, when you, when you hit it and you could see it and you can enjoy it, um, it, it, it was it was something that just kind of went straight down the hill and landed a couple inches from the pole. Um, and the people that were there, uh, you know, obviously that was a big, big turning point. And uh, I was able to go on and, and hold on and, and win it by five. Wow. So did they did like Dave and uh, and Sullivan, did they they kind of knew what they were getting into with this kid from California? Like because you you kind of were a known quantity or was it like, who's this guy and he's beating us? Like what's happening? They knew, I mean, they knew of, uh, you know, California young kid. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember if I met Dave before that. I know that, uh, Michael Sullivan knew, uh, Gene Luke Foray, uh, and maybe those stories got back to him, but, uh, yeah, you know, for the most part, um, they did know. And, uh, that was part of the challenge where, you know, I felt as though, uh, I may have been an underdog and I didn't like the feeling of losing by four tenths of a point or losing the U S open by uh, a few strokes, just, just a couple months before. So that was a, that was a big, you know, big thing for me. And I felt as though I didn't have anything to lose. Everybody was super nice for the most part. I mean, competition can go the other way. And, and you know, as you know, and, uh, but everybody was, was, uh, you know, Royce Rosanowski just kind of opened his home and, uh, they meant they made me feel at home, and um, boy, oh boy! I mean, at, you know, at the end, I, you know, I end up winning. I, I got the title. I didn't really realize what the title meant at that particular time. You know, what it would mean to me throughout all of these years. 
you know, I got a $500 check, which was like way better than paper route money that I was <laughs> earning at the time, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, then they presented me with this like vast Jim Palmieri collection. And then I knew how wise Dan Mangoni was because uh, <laughs> he definitely scored on that one, you know? Yeah, I uh, bet. Yeah. I was curious in looking at the PDJ results, it shows you as getting a thousand dollars, which I guess apparently was five hundred dollars plus the collection. But it doesn't. It shows second place getting nothing. Is is that really how it was, or is that just kind of the the numbers are lost to time because it was just recorded on some paper? You know, I can't speak to that. I mean, I would suspect that there was money for for second back then. There wasn't any age protected divisions. There was yeah. juniors, there was men's, and there was open, and that was it. So you're either you're playing in those three, and uh, yeah, I, I suspect there was some money that uh, you know, as you said, that was was lost to time. Sure, uh, and then and then like when you got back to go to high school some more, was was were your classmates like aware of the fact that you had like won the world championship in something, or was it like kind of a an afterthought, or I don't know, just some some of the how did how do you remember that? It's interesting because we played frisbee golf before Dave invented, you know the the modern age disc. And, and that was, that was a struggle. I mean, we were the first generation of people going, this is the coolest sport ever. It's going to be the best sport in the future. Trust us on this. But we were only one generation of people and, uh, you know, a group of people, very small group of people. And, uh, you know, we took ridicule, at least I did as a young kid. It was like, Oh yeah, you, you dance with the disc. It's, it, it involves, it's, it's disco. Um, or, or do you, you have a dog, you know? And so we, we went through all of that. At least I did, um, until, it, you know, Dave made it a lot easier with, with the, you know, when he came out with the Eagle, because then we were, it was, it became a dynamic sport and it was much easier to really let people know that disc golf is the sport of the future and it is the greatest sport that we could ever play. And, uh, back then we knew it. And now we know it. Um, it just it just took 40 years for, you know, all of you to catch up and realize it as well. Um, so, you know, I'm proud of that. And uh, when I came back, uh, it, the people did know and they were like, wow, you're playing Frisbee golf. And I'm, I'm saying, well, it's not Frisbee golf anymore. It's it's disc golf. And uh, as a result, we got more people from the high school over to play. And, you know, uh, you know, Oak Grove, first disc golf course, La Mirada, second. Huntington Beach third, and then the blips on the radar started started occurring, and you know, uh, players from all around the United States would congregate, and we would tell our stories and bring them back, and the clubs would grow, and um, it was really really gratifying to to see um, you know the family uh, grow from from that very small uh, uh, group of people into you know into today it's that that to me is it's just that's that's the wonder and that's the that's the uh, amazement of being involved uh, from the early years on yeah i think you absolutely should be proud in the role that you played in in uh helping to get the sport out you know just by doing the amazing things you could do at that time i feel like i don't know i mean i can hardly imagine it's so cool to think of the growth that you've seen in your, in your lifetime. Not that you're even that old yet. You know, you still have a, have plenty of holes of disc golf ahead of you, but, uh, well, th thanks for that name. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, man. And, and I guess, uh, the next thing I, that popped out at me 
was the very next year, 1985 Diff World Championship in Helsingborg, Sweden. And you obviously you went all the way there, age 17, most likely, and and took that one down. Won $4,000, according to the PDJ, which adjusted to today's money is $10,000 at age 17. Uh, what do you remember about that? Was that? I mean, you'd already lived internationally, I suppose, so you, you knew what it was like to fly over the ocean and all that. But to go all the way to Sweden and, and come away with that, did that feel like a bigger deal than the PDJ Worlds? Or, you know, how, what was that like? You know, it's uh, it, it's at the time. I'll be honest, it did. Uh, it, the U.S. Opens. I mean, that kind of really for us and our family. We would have Team Sweden come. We would have Team Japan come. This is in like to 1985. Uh, the overall events and and these uh, these teams would come to my house. My mom would host them because um, at that point now she started to love disc golf and everybody that would uh, that would come and. Um, they would come to the house. They would have dinner. We, we, I have great partnerships and, and friendships with them. And, uh, yeah, I, I kind of knew that I, I wanted to get over, over the pond to play. Uh, there was a, a player who I knew since the ninth, early eighties name was Toby Stenson. He's a very famous, uh, disc golfer, early disc golfer. He's still out there playing. Um, all the, my sweetest friends know him and, uh, you know, he, he was a great guy. I wanted to get over there and play. And they were they were saying, Whiff Diff, um, come on over. And they were and Dan Stork Roddick, who was pretty much the head of these these uh, U.S. Opens, um, was kind of the head. And he he made a U.S. team. And I, I, I can't you know, I, I know that there was uh, there was quite a bit of people that that went over. There was Michael Sullivan. There was Snapper Pearson. There was Harold Duvall. Um, one of my, uh, you know, early mentors and, and competitor, you know, I used to compete against Harold, um, Dave as well. And, and those, in those days, he was my coach, um, Scott Zimmerman, but, uh, the Harold, Harold was part of that team and we all went over Bill Burns. Um, we all went over to, to Sweden and, uh, it was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, we were playing, I, I, I'm pretty sure you may have played that course before in Helsingborg, but we were playing around four or 500 year old castle. So I, I had never imagined that disc golf could be, you know, that, that amazing. I mean, and, and to look at the, you know, the, uh, the buildings and realize that the, they were older than our, the country that we came from was pretty, pretty spectacular. Uh, out there playing, uh, you know, thousands of people watching. I mean, it, it craziness. And, uh, I, you know, after after it was all said and done, um, they gave me this big, huge check, you know, and I was holding it going, wow, I can't, this is, this is awesome. You know, I love disc golf. And uh, I was looking at it and, you know, it was like 4,000 or whatever it was in, in, the, in Kroner. And uh, yet we ended up, you know, I, I took the check and we got on the train and people that were just spectators, apparently they had broadcasted this on, on like national television. They all recognized us. It was kind of like the first real, whoa, you know, this is, I mean, they, people are now discovering what disc golf is and, and this is pretty darn cool. And what just happened? Uh, so when we, when we got back, here's an interesting story. When we got back to, uh, to America, we were waiting for the prize money to be, to be sent over. And the prize money never came. Uh, so we're looking at Stork, who's pretty much our, our guy, you know, he's team captain. And, uh, you know, he was like, we're working on it. We're trying to figure out what happened. And 
Um, turns out that the uh, person running the event had somehow mysteriously disappeared with prize money and ended up taking his, uh, his family on a, uh, a vacation that involved like hot air balloons. Um, I'm not kidding about this. And yes, dude. So we were like, Whoa, you know, and I, and I kind of like was shaking my head. I was, you know, going, well, what, what does that mean? (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, it would be nice. You know, so six months later and, and, you know, the the Swedish disc federation, they were awesome. Um, I, I guess they worked with the, the Swedish government and everybody eventually got their, their transfer after, uh, after the six month period. But that was something I'll never forget. I had a, I had a big, huge check, Nate. It was all like styrofoam and there was no way to cash that thing, you know? <laughs> what, no when you finally, when you finally got the money, what'd you do with it? I mean, that's a lot of money, you know, for a 17 year old. It, you know, it, it was, uh, I, you know, for the life of me, you know how it goes. You I probably, mean, probably saved it if you can't remember. I, I, I probably, I probably bought a Camaro or something. I don't, I don't know that, uh, but <laughs> it was, uh, it was something that I'll never forget. And it, it did give me a, like an, an idea, like, Hey, I like, you know, I was in Taiwan. I remember that as an early kid, you know, early age. And, uh, I like the idea of traveling. I like the fact that we can go and, uh, you know, people are speaking a different language, but we're throwing the disc and it's just a common understanding of the passion that we all share. Uh, together. And that to me was the, 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 the takeaway from playing in a, in a foreign, you know, you know, country and appreciating, you know, all the smiles, uh, that people had or the congratulations or, you know, it was just to me, it was, uh, it was something that I wanted to work towards, you know, in, you know, study and, and get abroad and, uh, and promote disc golf in, in every corner that I could. Yeah, absolutely. And I I definitely agree with you in that, you know, one of the things about my journey through disc golf in my career that I'm the most thankful and grateful about is, is just the, the vehicle that disc golf has been for me to see other places in the world and to, to be able to visit Sweden and Finland and Estonia and Czech Republic and Japan and uh, all these places to go and compete that uh, at Prince Edward Island, even, you know, place that why would I ever go there otherwise, you know, And, and just to be able to have had those experiences thanks to disc golf, something I am always really thankful for. But I, uh, I wonder, you know, along with all that, uh, I know that you had been coached by Dave and I know that kind of like distance was one of your calling cards, right? So, and did, did you at some point have a distance world record? I did. Yeah. And this is all part of that U S open, um, stage, you know, I mean, that, that was to us, 83 was my first, U.S. Open, and I think I played all the way to 890. And every year was like Christmas in June, um, just waiting for, you know, the caravan to, to roll up. And, and, and Whammo ran that one along with Dan Mangoni, uh, Stork, Dan, Danny McGinnis, his group of, uh, sports promotion. They had a sports promotion department at Whammo, which I thought was like really cool. Um, but Dave, Dave was like following me and, and I was looking, I mean, going, wow, that's Dave Dunapace. Um, you know, he's, you know, I, I, he gave me some golf tips, you know, uh, after, after Helsingborg, you know, we started playing a little bit together and then we, I believe the Swedes had a world, the, the world record at that time. And he pulled me aside and, uh, said, we need to, we need to get the record. And they were, um, uh, 
you know, Dave would, would take me out and he, he'd show me these techniques and it'd take me a while to kind of really understand and, and I'd have to go off by myself because, you know, I'm pretty stubborn when it comes to <laughs> taking things in. And, uh, you know, I just, just started to, you know, Dave had this disc called the Phoenix and go, this is the perfect sale for you. And, uh, you know, this, this is what you need to do. You need to get it up at this angle and it's going to take a lot of torque to get it up the nose down. But once you do, and, and it's, you're going to be able to, this, we're going to get the record. And it, it's just one of the practice sessions. I, I finally got it. You know, it was like, uh, finally got the angle and I was able to produce it a few times. And I, I knew I was ready at that point. And I ran back to Dave and said, you know, I, I got it. And he's like, let me see. And <laughs> we went out at La Mirada, man, right there at, at the uh, softball fields and, uh, was just throwing these Phoenixes out there. You know, it's five, 580, 590. And I knew I could, uh, I knew I could, you know, the goal was to, to, to go over the 600 foot mark and in, in competition. And, uh, that was at the 1987 U.S. Open. And that was, uh, in the distance competition. And we had, um, I think we had Craig Leva, who was a monster, as you know, always yeah. a monster, could throw up. I mean, he would throw so hard that he would say that the hot stamp would come off of the disc and go back on the disc. That's how, that's how hard Craig Leva <laughs> would, would throw that, that, that disc. And we had Hiro Oshima, who was the national hero, the national champion of Japan. Um, I believe Frank Aguilera, who was also, uh, a uh, world record holder from Southern California. Um, great players by the name from Sweden, by the name of Thomas Palmer, who was also, uh, I don't know if he was there at that time, but he came after the fact. All right. We had a little battery issue with Sam's headphones, so we're coming right back in, and that's why he sounds a little bit clearer, actually. He got an audio upgrade from his daughter's headphones, so these are, this is even better, a treat for the show. But I think we were kind of just discussing leading into that tournament you're getting the phoenixes up near 600 now we're kind of there competition day going for the record it was basically the semi final round and we were at la habra uh, right across the street that was the biggest area that we could get at the tour they could get at the time for the event and uh um i had, i threw one out there uh, 177 meters in the uh in the semi finals um, I think 184 was the record at the time. So I knew I was getting, getting closer and I, and the main thing was to make the finals. Um, because you go from, you know, 80 to 100 people to the top 16, uh, to the top four, um, for the finals. And I just, I just wanted to make it the top four. So I had another chance to, to go for it and made it, made it in the top position and, um, I can't remember who was there with me. I, I seen it was Hiroshi Oshima from Japan. I think Craig Leva made it in the number four position. And it may have been either Andy Lehman or Frank Aguilera that was, uh, was also there. It may have been Frank. Um, you know, everybody gathered for the finals. It was cool. It's what, it's what we did. It's what we, we, uh, we basically lived for, um, all year round, you know, and, uh, first two that I threw out there, I remember. They just, they, I was either turning them over too much, um, wasn't getting them high enough. They just, they, they weren't going to even get me, you know, to get it to a place where, you know, it's third place uh, in the standings. I knew that I needed to, to 
you know, rip one out there. And um, it was the fourth throw, and I, you know, wind was about seven miles an hour, and uh, it just got it up high. And I can't remember; it was either Russell Schwartz um, from Innova East or uh, Danny McGinnis uh, who had said that they were tracking the disc to market, and they knew that it was well over. Um, the, the furthest throw and they were watching and they could almost see it run, not run out of speed, but they could see the weight, uh, written on the, on the, uh, the bottom spinning. So they, they knew it was almost out of, out of, got, uh, got everything you could possibly get. I mean, if it's <laughs> as, running out of spin, that's a, that's incredible. As much as I could. And, uh, it, it rested down and I knew it was good. And we were sitting down and I, and, and Dave's like, you know, pointing at me and, uh, and we didn't know what it was, and they had their little laser measuring device back then. And and uh, Dan Stork Roddick said 190.07 meters, you know, wow. new world record. And I was blown away, you know. Just you know, went to Dave, gave him the big high five. Um, bunch of other people there, uh, you know, Prior Hendricks, who's no longer with us, and uh, just I just remember their faces, and uh, you know, super proud man. I mean. World Championship in, in disc golf, you know, that was something I never really thought that it could get any better. And, uh, you know, the, having that Guinness record, I held it for um, for nearly five years until it was, uh, I believe, Snapper Pearson's uh, guy, protege, uh, Peter Albers, um, set it with a Viper five years later um, down in the San Diego area. Wow. That's incredible. And I, I think I speak for... All of my peers in the modern professional disc golf scene, we do not understand how you guys c- could throw those discs that far. We uh, it doesn't make any sense. I can't even throw a destroyer that far. I know I'm not the the distance king, but like, I mean, I don't know if Double G could throw it. Di- I mean, it just doesn't even compute how you guys were able to do that. What's wrong with us? How come we can't? How come we can't throw our destroyers a thousand feet? Well, you know, you 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 could. Um, I mean, I, I, what I think happened was we started with, with, with these trash can lids, you know, for the most yeah. part we were, we were playing with, I mean, they were great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not uh, downgrading, um, the whammo disc sure. at all. That's where we started. We started with Frisbee, but It'd then be nowhere, you know, we'd be nowhere without them. We would be nowhere without them. And, uh, essentially, uh, we went from super pros, lightweight, uh, plastic to, uh, heavy midnight flyer plastic and uh that that i think trained our trained our uh, our you know our bodies to throw these these discs and uh um, when dave i mean earliest uh i probably the most impactful memory that i have was probably in 83 or 84 dave uh came out to la mirada he goes i want you to try something and he had the first eagle prototype eagle that he was experimenting with. This was like the first beveled edge disc. And I remember I'm like, Whoa. And they were these, these translucent orange, probably 155 grams. And we still stood back and forth at La Mirada, just effortlessly, um, you know, throwing these discs back and forth. And I realized that it was a, this definite game changer at that point. And, uh, so much fun. I mean, it just turned, it turned the, the, the game into a dynamic sport. And, um, that, that to me, I knew, wow, these things are going to go really far. And I, and I was 20, 20 years old. I mean, I, 
trained every day. I mean, pretty much I remember Craig Lave and I, after they kicked us out of La Mirada and the lights went out, we would go to uh, right up the street to uh, off a, a beach in Imperial, and there's a place called Gondola's Pizza, and we get you know a slice there, and we would throw back and forth in the parking lot from like 9.30 to 10.30 with the lights on in the parking lot until our parents came to pick us up. I mean, there was there was no stopping. There was no ending. So we played constantly and our, uh, um, it just felt, I mean, I don't think I could ever throw any further. Um, I think I pushed it to the limit. Um, uh, it, it was just, a, it was just the times, man. I mean, we, we kind of learned and we, we grew with our equipment. It's, it's just still incredible though. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's, you know, by all accounts closer to a putter than a driver, the stuff you guys were throwing. And for those, those of you that have seen some, uh, Central Coast videos, I got to shout out Sam Farrens as well for when we did the Battle of the Eras video a couple years back with Macbeth and Simon and myself and Kyle Sautel, and I played the role of the 80s guy. Uh, I, it was Sam who furnished me that that old school bag, the hat, and uh, <laughs> and I think a couple Phoenixes. I think I had Phoenixes. I don't know. I had I had discs, only discs from that era. So yeah, go watch that video if you haven't for one. Uh, and watch me not throw nearly 600 feet with these discs. Like I'm talking 350 tops. Uh, but yeah, it was Sam who hooked me up with that stuff so that I could look the part and, uh, and, and do, uh, do right by the, uh, the spirit of that event where we were messing around just playing with, uh, discs from certain decades. So it's amazing. I mean, I, d I just don't even understand it. I still don't. Your answer did not satisfy me. I don't understand why. We can't throw the destroyers even farther because it's just so incredible that you could get over 600 feet with those things. But moving on, uh, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your connection uh, with Japan because I know your your wife is Japanese. I know you've played a ton of Japan Opens. I know you've been involved with Hero Disc. I just wanted to explore that a little bit. Uh, how you how you have such a deep connection with Japan? All all came down to uh, those U.S. Opens, man. Again and. Uh... Uh, Team Japan would come um, every year. Uh, they would come to the house. Sometimes they would stay at the house. Um, Mom would cook beef stroganoff. It was it was part of what we did every year. And uh, um, they said, "What are you going to do uh, after you know after school?" Um, and I said, "Well, I I'd like to travel." And they said, "Well, if you you know go to university and once you graduate." You come, come to Japan, work, work for us. So that's what I did. I, I stayed local. I went to Cal State Fullerton. I graduated, uh, with, uh, international business degree and I had a little emphasis in Japanese and, uh, hopped on the plane and, uh, went to Japan, um, early nineties, uh, was there. Um, I mean, it's just a dream, you know, dream job, you know, for the most part, uh, uh promoting disc golf. We were, we worked for Hero Inc which was an outdoor uh, promotional company that specialized in um, just just having fun outdoors. Um, and the Japanese work very hard, usually at six days a week, and they have one day, usually Sunday, to, uh, to have recreation and to relax. Um, so uh, the, big, uh, the big business for our company was uh, the barbecue garden, um, where people would come out and rent barbecues and hammocks and, and buy the, the drinks and the, the – the, the steak sets and cook, cook in an outdoor environment. 
So um, this this became extremely popular. I was helping with that business, and then disc golf was on the side. So there would be a disc golf course, for example, at Shoakita and Cohen in Tachikawa. They would have the barbecue garden, and then you know eighteen holes at Showa Park. Um, people would would do that um, religiously every every Sunday. So uh, our our goal was to start planting these barbecue gardens and developing disc golf courses. You know, all around Japan, from Kyushu, which is the southern part of Japan, all the way up to Hokkaido, which is northern northern island. And uh, I was involved with uh, the Sasagawa Sports Foundation, um, which is a government-supported uh, 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 federation that that uh, embraces you know sports for all, outdoor recreation. Disc golf was a big part of what we did, and we were essentially Kozo Shimbo uh, San and I were on on tour, um, you know, three or four months a year, you know, going all around Japan to these small, uh, cities, uh, promoting disc golf as a result. It was, uh, it was wonderful, man. Wow. And, and you did that for how many years? I was there for, uh, seven, almost eight years. Um, uh, again, met, uh, met my, met my wife there, uh, you know, four or five years in, um, and again, you know, going back to where it all started, I, if my dad got like a job, you know, <laughs> yeah, if his job in Oakland, if, if somehow he, you know, his job took him to San Antonio or some other place, I mean, this would have never happened. I, I constantly think about, you know, how, how close that could have been if we weren't placed at the right place at the right time, being in La Mirada in 1975 would not have uh, had all these adventures, met, met, uh, you know, Dave Dunapace, uh, met, met all the, the teams from around the world, gone to Japan, me and my wife, you know, my kids. It's, it's, uh, it's truly, uh, something that, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm completely thankful for. And I think disc golf, maybe as a sport, as a whole, I think we owe, we maybe owe a, a great debt to your dad for nailing that job interview. <laughs> I, I guess so. Maybe it was Southern California or, you know, where, wherever it was, you know, Saudi Arabia, but, uh, I'm glad he chose Southern California. Yeah, me too. Uh, that's, that's amazing. So then was your, your next move was, uh, back to Southern California to begin your career with Innova after that, after the stint in Japan, bring your family, uh, your, your growing family, I guess, almost by that point. Cause you do have uh, quite a few kids, don't you? Right. We, yeah, we didn't start quite, uh, I mean, my, my Kumiko came back with me in, in 1999. Um, Dave had, uh, you know, when we got back, Dave had mentioned, Hey, we need, we need you. Um, you know, we'd, we'd already kind of talked about it because I was an affiliate of Innova while, when I was working for Hero. We, uh, we brought a lot of disc catchers, um, into, into Tokyo as a result. And, uh, big part of the business was, was, uh, was disc golf. So, um, he was kind and he said, you need to, I was living in La Mirada, um, yeah, with my parents and for about six months, um, transitioning with my wife, um, still didn't have any kids. And Dave says, if you don't get up to Rancho where the factory is, it's going to be, you're not going to be able to afford it because things are going through the roof. And, uh, I, uh, I ended up, uh, finding a, a place up, uh, near the factory and, um, you know, uh, really, I, you know, Working right with Tim, you know, uh, Tim Selinski. Uh, that event is coming up, uh, 
um, soon. I just saw some custom discs with his name on it. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, one of the, one of the founders of Innova and one of, one of my mentors. And, uh, it was an honor to, to work by his side for, uh, for all those years. But, um, yeah, truly, truly lucky, man. Truly yeah. Lucky. And, and Tim Solinsky, as you mentioned, a founder of Innova and a, a guy that I was lucky enough to meet. And now the, the U S masters championship named in his honor, uh, unfortunately gone too soon, but, uh, but yeah, uh, another huge figure in the sport of disc golf, just for anybody who's, who doesn't know that. But yeah, man, um, this was fantastic. I, I really, really want to thank you for give, for the opportunity to hear these stories and for you to share with us. And I'm sure Jarrett will fill us in. I'm sure that we have some interesting fan questions for you if you have time to answer a few. Sure. Yeah. I got the new microphone on. My daughter's looking at me like she still has chemistry homework, but let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't keep you too long, but we did get a couple yeah, of fun let's... questions. Um, that I would, okay. I'd like to hear your take on. Um, first, not necessarily a question as much as it was a, uh, a comment, but on Instagram, uh, Gary B. Myers says he has great memories meeting and competing against you in the 83 junior worlds and that you're yes. a great player and an even better human. Ah, oh, Gary is such an awesome dude. He, and I, you know what? There's so many people that I wanted to, uh, wanted to remember and thank and Gary's one of them he's just a great dude always has been I remember him 1983 he was right there with uh with uh with Leva and and the Molnar brothers and um just just uh heartfelt thanks to Gary and I know um he went through some uh, uh you know a challenging accident um to most recently um you know uh just good thoughts in your direction I see that you're recovering and I uh, love you buddy Awesome. Yeah, that was, uh, it was cool to, to have somebody comment that, that actually got a chance to play with you. Um, Scott sends into the email, and this is something that we've spoken about previously on this show, and I'm just kind of interested in your take on it. Scott says, it seems that a lot of times people try to downgrade a Ken Climo's 12-time world championship because the competition level was not as high. Now, just listening to your podcast today, or with this podcast with you today, you mentioned some amazing players and some people that broke ground in the sport. So what his question was, in your opinion, what's more impressive, Ken's 12 world championships or someone like a Paul Macbeth's five world championships with today's competition? Wow, asking the tough questions. That's tough. I mean, uh, boy. I would say that from the, even the, from the very beginning, I mean, we talk about generations. Disc golf now has three, maybe even four generations from the big bang, from when it all started. And, and I'll tell you from, from being on that outskirt of the first generation, um, it, we still have the same passion. We still have the same drive. We still have the same, uh, competitive zeal. We still f felt bad when we were defeated. Um, it, it's, it's, we still feel the same. And that second generation, maybe Ken Climo, Ken Climo came on the scene and he was playing in the eighties. I know that, but truly came on the scene in the nineties and, uh, in, in Arizona. And, uh, he was a, he was a beast. So I, I'm not sure I can, I, you know, he, he was the beast in the nineties. You know, I know Paul came up, came up about, uh, you know, maybe a generation later. Um, and he was a beast. So it's hard to compare. I know that you were out there. I know you still need to you make your drives. You still need to make your putts. We may be uh, competing 
you know, for, for less prize money, but there's still the same, the same, uh, feeling that there's still that competitive energy that's out there that never goes away. So, um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing the next, uh, the next world beater out there. Who's next? We see so many juniors and so many, uh, young players now out there that are, you know, that are just awesome, you know, throwing 600 feet with not, without even blinking. Um, so that's where the future lies. I think every generation has their, uh, has the champion. Um, and it's, it's difficult to compare. Um, it wouldn't be fair. I like that answer. I think me too. A, me I, too. I, th- I think that's a great answer. And I think that's, that kind of carries true in lots of sports. You don't have to give a goat, but you know, everybody kind of takes their generation. So I, I like that. Um, Jarrett from Buffalo wants to know, uh, since you've kind of been around since the inception of, of disc golf and you've continued through, um, forget about the, what is Sam's Mount Rushmore of disc golf? <laughs> this guy, there's no, there's, just, there's no just wrong so you answer know, here. just so you know, Sam, this Jarrett from Buffalo guy is getting, he's getting preferential treatment. He's getting a question in almost every show. He comes good up with good Jared. questions. Yeah, yeah, he does. The questions are usually good. But yeah, looking for kind of a, a top four influential or skill. It can be a combination of any of those things. Just some some monumental names in the history of the sport. And it can be to you. It doesn't have to be to anyone else. You know, so this isn't, in, but this is to you. Who would be on your Mount Rushmore? You know, um, it, I go with the standard answers. I mean, you, you look at, you know, the pole hole creation, you know, uh, you know, taking us from, you know, basically establishing Frisbee golf and, 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 and bringing us closer to, uh, making a game into a dynamic sport. We have to, you know, I'd, I'd probably get booed if I didn't say Ed Hedrick as one of those, uh, people. Um, of course, my mentor and, uh, my, my boss and my coach, um, I've seen him since day, you know, as, from when I can remember throwing the, throwing the first prototype, you know, Dave, Dave Dunapace is, is, should be etched strongly in that granite. Um, my, uh, another, uh, mentor, um, uh, U.S. Open, you know, always almost like the Abe Lincoln of, of our sport, the way he just, just delivers words and, and is part of our Frisbee family, uh, Dan Stork Roddick. Would be uh, would be uh, you know another uh, uh, candidate or another you know, person on that uh, that on that list, and uh, boy, um, it's 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 tough to come up with number four. Let, let me just say that that there's someone out there. You know, maybe it's they're they're still they're still etching away. I I can't come up with uh, with number four off off the top of my head, and I don't want to. You know, I don't want to make, uh, you know, a light of, of the question because it's, it's very important, but, um, uh, I would, I would use those, those three for now and, uh, reserve, uh, comment for, uh, for a later date. I and, like that. Yeah, I do too. And, and one, one of our next two weeks, our next two guests after you are Juliana Corver and Dan Stork Roddick. So if you have it at the top of your head, give me some kind of question that's really going to th- surprise Dan that I can even ask this question. Something that's really going to take him back. Is there anything that pops into your mind that I could kind of ask him and he'll go, what, how, how did you know that? 
Man, uh, that's a good question. Uh, you can you know, tell you can me talk, later. You can tell me you later. Can, you can ask him that if he had anything to do uh, with the uh, the balloon uh, rides in uh, in Helsingborg, Sweden. Uh, is he is he uh, was he kind of a corrupt? Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, he funneled no, that money. He took he got yeah. those people up in the balloons. <laughs> he'll he'll certainly substantiate the. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, I'll ask him about the that. story there. That's a the good. I'll there. be like, hey man, do you know anything about the hot air balloons outside Helsingborg? And see what he says to that. But yeah, he's uh, you're you're very very uh, fortunate to have him, and again, uh, just uh, you know, quite the storyteller, you know, super articulate, and, and uh, in a way that he he is one of the guys that can can uh, can tell the story. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, I just remember him. You should ask him about his fondest memory of of the U.S. Opens that he put on. Um, you should ask him about uh, uh, Jim Palmieri stories. That's another character in our sport. Um, he's got a million of them. Okay, I might I might ask you to email me with some of these because I don't want to forget any of this. I got to get it all, everything I can get out of Dan. I I want to get because I'm really excited for that episode. I'll do it. Cool. We we got anything else for him, Jarrett? Yeah, we've got another one, another fun one here. Uh, Andy sends into the email. How often are you playing disc golf now? And what's in Sam's bag? <laughs> well, I try to get out there on Saturdays. Uh, I try to get out there. Sometimes I can play with Dave. Sometimes I, I don't, I'm not able to get up, um, you know, as, as, as early as that, that gentleman gets up, uh, before dawn. But we, uh, I, I get out there uh, as I've, I've been actually at Whittier Narrows, which is probably one of the top ten courses. I don't know if you had a chance to play the, the uh, that course, guys. But uh, I haven't yet. That's but I want to. Play. Oh, you have to. It's it's fantastic. They still have some of the old Mach twos there. I believe it or not, um, and uh, twenty seven holes uh, could be thirty six, and that's a great place to train. But try to get out on Saturdays. Try to do four four or five hours, and then I got family obligations with. Uh, with my family and my mother, who's still still here up in Apple Valley, um, so we reserve Sundays for for uh, for family. Um, but yeah, I'm still out there, and uh, I am throwing I'm, I'm throwing a firefly. Yeah, nice. Yes, I am. I'm throwing one of those. Love those. Got a got a P two uh, that I like for longer putts. Um, I have a coyote uh, as well. I, I know that's kind of a weird one, but it's it's nice and straight for me. Um, I like an Ontario rock, which is, um, you know, a big old, old disc. It's a nice turnover floater. Uh, a leopard three. I like a halo leopard three. Um, I'm a Shrike fan. And I also, uh, I also like, uh, like the Mamba for, for rolling at times. Nice. Oh, this just came in. Uh, a follow-up from Jarrett from Buffalo wants to know, <laughs> does anybody ever beat Dave down a pace out there? Uh, you know, I, I think I, I, I may have said um, that I've you know, been fired multiple times from Dave uh, uh, this, <laughs> the same day and uh, uh, rehired back the same day. Um, no one beats Dave. No one beats Dave. <laughs> smart. Very smart. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, uh, Sam, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of these stories, uh, for myself, uh, uh, you know, to be able to hear a little bit more about the history and, and how you guys really kind of paved the way for us to be able to get the sport to where it is now is, is truly an honor. And, uh, I'm happy to be able to bring it to the listeners and, and hear these stories and, and just know all the awesome things that you've done in the sport. So I can't thank you enough for, uh, for coming and sharing these with us. Very cool, guys. I, I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity. When they said a podcast, I was thinking like I had to get in this little pod thing. You know, it's like, no, no, Sam. Jeff Panis had to explain to me it's not a – you don't have to get into a pod. It's like futuristic radio. Um, yeah. This is just all it is, man. So I really – I mean, seriously, I appreciate you guys doing what you're doing. Um, it's an honor for me. Uh, I'm going to, you know, just we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, disc golf is is growing leaps and bounds. Uh, you know, it's we're at a point where we can't make discs fast enough, um, and uh, there's millions of disc golfers out there that haven't discovered the uh, our great sport yet. So we're, our job is to make sure that they do. Awesome, and yeah, we would we'll have you back on the show anytime you're willing, Sam. I know we got, I know there's plenty more stories in there that we would love to hear. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. All right, man. I'll see you later. Thank you. Take it easy. Wow, that was really a, a cool interview. Um, it's really awesome to hear from some of the greats. I have a lot of fun hearing from today's pros, but hearing about the people that paved the way is is really exciting for me. Yeah, same here, man. I mean, I love the guys that I get to compete against, but you know, I'm a fan too, and and getting to hear stories that I've never would have gotten to hear, and and knowing that through this show you know, sort of like an oral history of, of a lot of the important moments and figures of the game. We're going to create that, you know, over these next weeks and months and years, hopefully. So that, you know, that, that, uh, I'm proud of that, that we can kind of get these stories out there and, and let some of these legends, uh, talk to the, the players of today. Typically this is when our listeners expect us to sign off, but you're doing a little bit of bonus for our listeners. So here's a little bonus running it, uh, content, something that's uh, pretty important to you, Nate. Who else are we going to be running it with today? Yeah, we're going to get to talk to John Baker just quickly. He's the co-director of Collegiate Disc Golf, something that's near and dear to my heart as I used to be a coach for the Oregon State Beavers for a couple of years. And Macbeth and I used to go and run clinics at the College National Championships as well back when we were on the road together. So it's been a couple of years since I've seen it, but I want to talk to John a little bit, welcome him to the show, and kind of get an update on the state of Collegiate Disc Golf right now. So hello, John. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Uh, very privileged to be on the podcast. Appreciate y'all taking the time out to talk about college disc golf. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, every sport's been dealing with COVID, but I know you guys have been growing big even pre-pandemic. So, like, what was the, what's the peak? How many how many schools have gotten involved at this point? You know, uh, even even pre-COVID. Oh yes, I mean, COVID has definitely had a major impact on us. We're, we're dictated by some different factors than the typical disc golf play. We really have to, you know, we're at the mercy of school policy on a lot of the choices we make and like how our decisions are dictated for college disc golf as a whole. But, um, yeah, beyond that, we've seen exponential growth in our season. It's pretty incredible. We're seeing clubs grow to 20, 30 members plus. It's pretty exciting. We're having around a hundred teams participate in the season. Um, so we're seeing uh, growth across the board, and we can't be more excited about it. Wow, that's great. And like I said, I used to coach for the Oregon State Beavers. I made the flight out there with the team a couple times uh, to play at the – to coach them while they played the national championship. 
what's it looking like this year for nationals? What's the venue and, uh, you know, how many teams are you expecting? Well, we're happy to be having an event this year. We actually had to cancel last year, which was a huge bummer, but we're rocking it this year. We're going to be in uh, Marion, North Carolina at a brand new venue called the North Cove Social Club. Um, they're creating two courses, and we're going to be privileged to be the first event to be there at the facility. It's beautiful in the foothills of the North Carolina mountains right off the Blue Ridge Parkway. It's a gorgeous area on a um, ball golf. It was a former ball golf course. And now it's home to disc, two disc golf courses and the guys have plans for like a venue and um, there's going to be a restaurant with a clubhouse there and everything. It's going to be a beautiful pay to play facility. And like I said, we're lucky to be the first event um, taking place there and we can't be more excited. Wow. I needed them to hurry up with that back when I was living in Asheville. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it is. We're getting tons of questions about when can, when can the players play and stuff like that. And we're getting it ready as quick as we can. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful piece of property and, and we're again, just incredibly lucky and we can't be grateful enough to be, you know, breaking it in as the first event. Nice. Well, I think kind of in closing, what I would like to kind of say to our listeners, I, I'm a big Beavers fan, you know, across all sports. And I think a lot of our listeners are probably collegiate sports fans as well. I think it might be a pretty good chance that if you're a disc golfer and you, you have a school you like to back that, that school probably has a team that probably has an Instagram account and can probably be contacted. And I bet you can get yourself some discs with those logos in a lot of cases. So you can support your team, support these kids getting out there and competing at the highest level for college disc golf. Uh, it's awesome. I have a couple of beaver stamp discs in my bag and I, I intend to keep doing that. So I encourage people to kind of reach out and try to be fans, you know, for these guys and, and, and root them on to, uh, as, as far as they can go in the, in the disc golf season and on into the national championship. Yeah, definitely. We have a, we just launched a new version of our website, collegediscgolf.com. There you can find uh, team pages, player profiles, all kind of ways to contact the teams. And if not, you can reach out to us and we'll put you in contact with them. We have some solid brands like the Oregon State Beavers, Nate mentioned. Um, but we also have teams from the Southeast, such as Clemson, and other strong brands like that. And you can support the teams and get discs with their logos on them. And if you're a player at a college or university and you're interested in starting your team and competing, collegediscgolf.com has tons of resources there on how to get school funding, get discs with your logos, all kinds of stuff like that to participate in the season. Awesome. I hope people do that. We need to keep growing it. And I, th- I thank you for the work you've done so far. It's a really exciting event to take part in. And I hope to be back there. Uh, I'm down to do a clinic whenever you guys need me. So thanks a lot, John, and uh, good luck with the season. Thank you, Nate. We appreciate it. We can't wait to have you back. Thanks, John. Now, Nate, last week with Simon, we talked a little bit about growing the sport. We talked a little bit about things that are going on in Europe and some of the courses. And I've been in contact with a, a gentleman who's working on a bunch of cool projects. But one of the projects he's doing is building a course in Norway. And he has actually gone ahead and documented every step of this. And he set it up on his YouTube page. I'm going to be sharing this on all of our socials. So whether you're following us, uh, running it at Nate Sexton on Facebook or running it at Nate Sexton on Instagram, I'm going to go ahead and share this. Nate, he has really, I mean, they're out there with huge machinery. They're logging it, but he's doing something really cool that I've never seen before. T-box signs. Those are a thing of the past, okay? They're actually building little Lego diagrams at the beginning of every single course, or excuse me, at the beginning of every single hole. Wow. You can see how it plays. They've got little Lego trees there. So you can actually see the hole before you get to it 
Really pretty neat. And uh, you guys visit our social media. I'm going to share all the links. Uh, if you guys want to see how a disc golf course gets made, you want to hop over there and check this out. I'm going to share his Facebook page and his YouTube page. Check this out. Check out some of this uh, this neat stuff that they're doing over there and, uh, and growing the sport, putting some courses up in Norway. Who knows, Nate? Maybe you'll be out there flinging some plastic at some point. Oh, I plan to. That sounds awesome. Yeah. It would be absolutely awesome. And uh, I actually did something kind of crazy today, Nate. I was gifted uh, a couple discs. Um, they're competitor's disc. You know, if I'm going to buy discs, I'm only buying Innova Champion discs, right? But I was actually given some tour discs uh, from some of your friends. And uh, you know what I did with them, man? I took what? them to a court. I took them to a course and I played with them. These things aren't for sale, okay? These, <laughs> these discs, these discs are for flying. They're not for selling. So, um, it was, <laughs> I've had a lot of fun with it. So, uh, it's, they're not my destroyers, but you know, it was, it was kind of cool. And one of the guys nice. I was playing with today said, uh, what, what, are you really playing with those? And I went, <laughs> bet your ass I'm playing with them. So, uh, so, so yeah, that's kind of a, kind of a crazy thing. Uh, so for you guys out there that are collecting all these discs, we need, we need discs in flight, not on your wall. Uh, hey, man, I don't know. I'm not going to I'm not going to go throw in the collectors under under the bus. I need those guys, too. But yeah, I, I throwers, too. You, you do it. You, you do you whatever you want to do with those discs. So we're, we're, I'm good with it. <laughs> hey, I uh, did. you Did you see? Did do we know if the big kahuna got let into the Nate Sexton collectors group yet or not? I, pu I put in a good word for him. You know, he, he, he if he gets annoying, I know who to call to get him out of there. So it, it, we're going to give it at least a test, I think. All right. All right. As long as we're pulling all the all the right strings. So yeah. uh, you had a, you had a lot of fun calling live disc golf. Uh, what's up next for Nate Sexton and the Pro Tour? Uh, well, I'll be back uh, down there in Bend uh, to do the Texas State Championships National Tour uh, with Nate Doss uh and val uh in two weeks and then i will also be calling the jonesboro open dgpt in april and then i will be back in action competing i just bought my flight today uh to kansas for the dynamic discs open national tour in late april so that's my next competition but i've got two more broadcasts uh between now and then well i'll tell you the comments were great uh, people really enjoyed, um, you know, both both groups. They really loved you, uh, Nate and and Ian, and you and Val. It was just, uh, it was really cool hearing you call some some live disc golf. And it was kind of like when we had Nate on the podcast. I said, you know, it's like an old. He just kept calling you Sexton, which was awesome. I felt like he was like your gym teacher, like Sexton. <laughs> let's go here. Well, with two Nates on the show, you know, you got to do something. Right, right. Well, you know, two Nates is better than none, as far as I'm concerned. It's better than one, too. The more, the better. Absolutely, for sure. So, um, guys, we thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed doing it. Um, special thanks to both of our guests. And... Don't forget to check out our sponsors. Guys, we're able to bring this show to you for free because we have amazing support from our sponsors. So FisherDiscGolf.com, CabCoffeeRoasters.BigCartel. Check them out on social media. Give them a follow. We got a little bit of a contest going on. I'm going to give you guys some more information. I know I teased you with the discs. We're going to do a giveaway. But in order to be included, you got to be following our sponsors, Fisher Disc Golf and Cab Coffee Roasters on social media. Nate, I had an amazing time doing this today. And I'll tell you what, we didn't lay it up today, man. No, I mean, 
we don't have that luxury. These guys are throwing 600 feet with a Phoenix in the 80s. Like, what, what business do I have laying it up? I got to run it. Guys, we'll see you next week.